In virtually every university philosophy department from sea to shining sea, in virtually every course syllabus, in virtually every assignment description on the syllabus, the same word consistently appears and reappears again and again. Often italicized for emphasis, this word is what distinguishes a properly philosophical attitude and assessment from the mere repetition of opinions. When we trainees in the art of a life wisely lived are assigned a task, usually one of writing, we are expected to undertake that task critically. Write a critical reflection on so-and-so's ideas. Present your critical evaluation of such-and-such. But this requirement can sometimes be daunting, especially when the subject matter to be critically engaged is signed by one of those canonized names synonymous with philosophy itself. If we're working with the great works of some of the greatest minds of all time, shouldn't we begin with more humility, suspending our own standards of truth and validity in order to be capable of more sympathetically grasping and understanding those of the immortal author? Shouldn't a critical assessment be first and foremost a self-critical assessment, one in which I put myself at stake in an inquiry guided by minds greater than my own to which I submit myself? Indeed, university professors are usually well aware of the dialectic at play in a philosophical education between the presupposed standards a student brings to an inquiry on the one hand and those of the authors to be critically engaged on the other hand. The critical task professors invite students into will often involve dialectically working through these perhaps opposing criteria of critical justification. The best teachers certainly recognize that if philosophical critique merely consists in the application of standardized methods and rules of thinking that we've inherited, or are in the process of inheriting as philosophical trainees working in the academic milieu, then philosophical thought will consequently become nothing more than the formalized repetition of what is already presupposed as valid according to conventional standards of critique. Essential to the critical task, then, and to a philosophical education, is for those of us who engage with the history of ideas to be willing to put ourselves at stake in the inquiry, and that in two senses. First, we put ourselves at stake by being willing to abandon our own standards of judgment in order to honestly attempt to grasp and express those of another. But secondly, paradoxically, we must also put ourselves at stake precisely by trusting our critical capacity to comprehend and render judgments concerning even those great philosophers whose names are to us as luminous beacons of truth amidst the dark uncertainty of our perennial stupidity. If everything is at stake in the inquiry, writes today's guest, there can be no fixed standpoint from which critique occurs. Rather, the criteria of the investigation must be themselves open to transformation. And with the criteria, also we who establish them. Such is the procedure of G.W.F. Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. Hegel's effort to achieve genuine critique requires putting at stake both the very possibility of philosophy and our criteria for determining what counts as genuine philosophical knowledge. And this effort issues in his distinctive self-transformational philosophical procedure. A procedure, or path, not of mastery and self-certainty, but of self-loss, alienation, and despair. This is Philosophy for the People. I'm your host, Nathan Wiley, here with producer Nick Cook. Hello. In today's episode, we discuss critical thinking and self-transformation, lessons from Hegel, with associate professor and coordinator of the Certificate in Ethics, Values, and Society at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Dr. William Bristow. Dr. Bristow, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here. So Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit occupies a monumental place in the canon of Western philosophical classics. Published in 1807, it is a modern classic of German idealism in the decades following Immanuel Kant. Like Kant's critique of pure reason before it, 
The phenomenology addresses itself to crisis in the wake of European enlightenment regarding the possibility of metaphysics. Dr. Bristow, you've written the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on the enlightenment. So could you perhaps begin uh, by enlightening us on how significant metaphysics was seen to be for philosophy at the dawn of the enlightenment and how the enlightenment began to cast doubt on the legitimacy of metaphysical claims in philosophy. Um, yes. Um, so, yeah, as you referenced there, um, at the at the beginning of the period of the Enlightenment, um, metaphysics is. I mean, if you think of, for example, the um, the work of Descartes and followers of Descartes or of, of Spinoza, it's attempting to establish metaphysics as first philosophy uh, and in a kind of revolutionary way relative to previous philosophy. Um, but with the development of empiricism, there gets to be a, a, a general suspicion against, um, against the possibility of, of metaphysics in philosophy. Uh, for example, John Locke or David Hume, uh, and in kind of common sense philosophy in Scotland, there's more of a mistrust of this attempt to know supersensible objects. So I, I think that is a kind of trajectory within the Enlightenment period is there's a progressive um, suspicion that grows with respect to the enterprise of metaphysics as kind of empirical science gains its own footing, so to speak, and can um, establish its claims, you know, without the validation of metaphysics. And metaphysics proves itself to be what Kant called a battlefield of endless controversy, not able to establish itself as a science. Uh, there's the general kind of ambition to do without metaphysics altogether. So you mentioned um, that metaphysics took as its object super sensible objects. Now, what sorts of objects are these? They're to be contrasted with those objects of thought proper to the empiricists. Right. Um, in Kant, um, and perhaps I was kind of channeling a bit of Kant there, the, the super sensible objects are God, the soul, and the world as a whole. Um, the world as an entirety, and which is associated with, for him with the concept of freedom. Um, this corresponds to the traditional discipline of metaphysics, so-called special metaphysics, um, in, that you know is inherited from the medieval period. Special metaphysics uh, divides into three different subdomains: um, philosophical theology, the object of which is God; philosophical cosmology, the object of which is the world as a whole, and philosophical psychology, the object of which is, um, um, is, is the soul. And none of these objects are tangible, yet the right. metaphysician will claim knowledge of them nonetheless. But on what basis were metaphysicians claiming knowledge of these supersensual objects? Well, through the pure intellect or through, um, through pure thought. Say, for example, in Descartes' philosophy, um, we have an innate idea of God. It's an idea that resides in our intellect. And if we um, engage in a kind of disciplined method of thought, we can lift this thought in, in our mind and examine it and scrutinize it and come to know the existence of God anyway um, in, in, in that way. And in fact, that's, that's first philosophy. I mean, we can't really know anything else um, except by way of first knowing the existence of God, according to Descartes, um, uh, and that's pure intellectual knowledge. And and he thought you could know the soul in in the same way. That's a kind of main project for him in the meditations is to show that um, our, uh, we, we know better than anything else, <laughs> and we have we can attain most certain knowledge of not of the objects of the senses, but rather of the God and the soul. Now, Immanuel Kant, he is a seminal Enlightenment thinker. He's also a late Enlightenment thinker. To what extent was he in agreement with Descartes on this point? And in what ways did he diverge? Well, fundamentally, with respect to what we're talking about, he's attacked these um, disciplines of rationalist metaphysics. So in his Critique of Pure Reason, he sets limits, determinate limits to human knowledge, according to which we cannot know 
whether there's a God or the nature of God, um, whether there exists an immortal soul, um, or whether um, or anything about the size or extent or nature of the world as a whole. So these traditional metaphysical topics, Kant argues in his Critique of Pure Reason that we can't attain knowledge of them. Um, so in that sense, he attacks um, the, the whole rationalist metaphysical enterprise. So he attacks the rationalist metaphysical enterprise, and instead he turns from the objects of metaphysical speculation to the source of those speculations, namely reason itself. Right, right. He, he wants to undertake an investigation of reason. In the Critique of Pure Reason, he's concerned with the problems of metaphysics, right? I mean, reason poses these questions about God, about the soul, about the world as a whole. And those questions arise within reason inevitably. I mean, reason can't but pose those questions. But what Kant finds is that reason also can't answer those questions, right? So it's, 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 it's driven to pose those questions, but it, can't, it, doesn't, it doesn't know how to answer them in a way that gains consensus among all inquirers, right? That's the idea that, re, that metaphysics can establish itself as a science. And this is a highly frustrating condition for us, right? We can, I mean, if we could just do as some empiricists might seem to want to do, which is to just stop asking the questions, right? Just expunge these concepts from our science, right? Um, then that then we would be able to kind of rest with with uh, without doing metaphysics. But Kant doesn't think that's possible. He thinks that the the, the questions about what he calls, you know, these. God, soul, the world as a whole, those are three different determinations of what he calls the unconditioned. The question about the unconditioned is hidden in our reason itself and cannot be avoided. And so he thinks that what we need to do is to turn back our gaze, as it were, as rational inquirers back on reason itself to see how these problems arise out of reason in the first place and what resources we might have to come to terms with it. How is metaphysics possible? Is it possible? That has to be the first question, according to Kant. And that's the question that really, the question of the critical philosophy that is in, 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 in inaugurated with the critique of pure reason. Ah, yes, the critical Kantian project. You know, unlike we often talk today um, about the consensus of the scientific community, but we never talk about the consensus of the philosophical community. Right. Uh, because the philosophical community, we always have to keep returning back to this project of critique and of questioning how knowledge is evaluated at all. Right. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's an interesting fact. I mean, I think Kant really thought that. He could establish metaphysics as a science for the first time. It's a project that Hegel himself also is following up on and intermediary figures between Kant and, and Hegel before Kant and after, um, um, up through Hegel, there's this, this uh, um, obsession, you might say, with establishing philosophy as a science. But as you say, um, if the mark of a science is a kind of general agreement on results um, among the inquiring community, it never succeeds. Um, I mean, for all the brilliance of what's produced through this philosophical efflorescence, um, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of aim of establishing philosophy of, uh, as a science never succeeds. But there's still something of value uh, that we can derive from this uh, ambition, I think. Um, now, these two names that have come up here, Kant and Hegel, these names are basically synonymous with philosophy in, in many ways. It's fabulous that today we have the occasion to learn something about each, uh, and we're going to do so by discussing your book, uh, Professor, and the title of your book is Hegel and the Transformation of Philosophical Critique. Now, as the title suggests, it's a book about Hegel, but Kant also plays a prominent role in the interpretation you present of the transformation that occurs in Hegel's response to the Kantian project of critique. Maybe I could say a little bit more about um, the, the critical project as um, Kant kind of initiates it in, in philosophy. I have said a bit about this already, that he, he thinks that the first thing we have to do, the first step into metaphysics is, is a kind of prior inquiry that's epistemological. It, we're asking, how is metaphysical knowledge possible? 
for us, right? That's we have to know that first. And so, and that's really what the critical inquiry is. It's it's a it's an uh, he calls it in the um, critique of pure reason a propedeutic, meaning a kind of introductory inquiry. It comes before metaphysics itself because it's the inquiry in which we're going to uh, uh, establish how and whether metaphysics is possible. And um, it's also a subjective inquiry, right? Because we're going to, reason is turned back and examining itself, right? We're examining our own cognitive faculties to know their suitability, as it were, for um, cognition of the unconditioned or um, uh, God's soul or the the world uh, as a whole. Um, So we're asking the question, how is that knowledge possible prior to undertaking that to acquire that knowledge? Um, so one way to just express the epistemological problem is how is metaphysics possible, right? And, and you asked that question earlier, and um, I said something kind of vague about, well, it's possible through pure reason, right? It was possible through the pure intellect. But, um, but, but Kant thought that um, um, there was a kind of more specific way to conceive of um, metaphysical knowledge um, where it's, um, it's, it's both synthetic and at the same time, a priori. And um, the combination of those two being both synthetic and a priori is something that poses a certain puzzle with respect to the possibility of that knowledge. And so he wants to address that puzzle in the, in, in the, um, in, in the critique of pure reason. And that's what, that's what he sets himself to do. Let's break yeah. down those two terms, synthetic and a priori. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with a priori first. What kind of knowledge is a priori knowledge? Um, well, it's knowledge independent of experience, in, independent of particular experience. And um, I mean, the distinction between a priori and a posteriori knowledge goes clear back to the beginnings of uh, philosophy in the West. It's an, it's an ancient distinction. Um, and it's basically the distinction between knowledge on the basis of experience and knowledge um, independent of experience, right? Um, and and so when I was ref- what I referred to earlier as kind of knowledge through the pure intellect, that would be a priori knowledge. Um, and um, a mathematics is a is a um, is kind of traditionally conceived of as a, a domain of a priori knowledge. For Kant. Um, a priori knowledge has two markers that are important. Um, an a priori proposition is is universal and necessary, right? And any knowledge that's based upon experience can, can, can be neither universal nor necessary. So Kant thought that science had to have an a priori element in order to be science, because it had to have this element as being both a priori and necessary. Mm. So it has to pass the universalizability test. Yeah, laws of nature, like Newton's laws, they have a universality and a necessity to to them that that mere generalizations based upon experience don't have, right? And how about um, the other component to this uh, formula, synthetic a priori knowledge? What is meant by synthetic in this context? Well, the distinction between analytic judgments and synthetic judgments is actually Kant's innovation. It wasn't really articulated as such prior to Kant. Um, and an, an analytic judgment is one in which the predicate of the judgment is implicitly contained in, in the subject concept. So if you have um, the judgment um all bachelors are un, unmarried. <laughs> it's a classic kind of um, hackneyed example. But um, but in the definition of the concept bachelor, uh, say as an unmarried male, you already have the predicate concept of being unmarried implicitly thought in the subject concept. Um, and so all you have to do in order to justify that concept is kind of draw out the predicate concept by thinking carefully and fully about what's contained in the subject concept. And so the denial of an analytic judgment is a contradiction. To say of some bachelor that he's married is to contradict yourself. And so the principle of a um, of, of an analytic judgment is the principle of non-contradiction. So logic itself, the principle of non-contradiction is the kind of justificatory basis of analytic judgments. The 
synthetic judgment, in contrast, is a judgment where you uh, um, attach a predicate to a subject concept that's not already thought in the subject concept. Kant calls such judgments ampliative, right? That you're going outside the subject concept. So um, any of the ordinary judgments will be, will be synthetic in the sense that the predicate concept is not already implicitly thought in the subject concept. Most of our synthetic judgments are, are based upon experience, right? We, we know them um, by, by appeal to experience, but that makes them a posteriori, not a priori, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we, we can understand synthetic judgments as grounded in experience. We can un understand a priori judgments as grounded in logic. But what about um, a priori judgments that are synthetic? And, and Kant thought that these were the most interesting judgments. They were the most fundamental judgments. So he thought that mathematics was synthetic a priori. He thought metaphysics was synthetic a priori. He thought that the most general part of natural science, so Newton's laws, for example, are synthetic a priori. And so there's just a question of how it is that those can be justified. They can't be justified by pure logic because the predicate concept is not implicitly thought. Their denial is not a contradiction, right? Their denial is not a contradiction. So logic doesn't justify them, but neither does experience because there are a priori. So if you take the, the principle that every event has a cause, um, as Hume had taught us, there's nothing contradictory in the thought of an uncaused event, right? So we don't know by logic that there can't be events that are uncaused, but still Kant thought we knew that a priori. It's, we, it's an a priori synthetic judgment. And the question is, how is it justified? And so the epistemological discovery here that Kant feels that he's made is answering the question, how is synthetic a priori knowledge possible? Exactly, right. And the fate of metaphysics rests on answering that question. So um, he, he thought that the, the reason that metaphysics is such a mess, right, that it's a battlefield of endless controversies, you have these conflicting systems and, and no consensus with respect to the fundamental questions that lie in the very nature of reason that, that we just can't avoid asking, is because we haven't yet uncovered what kind of knowledge it is and what the problem is that that kind of knowledge poses. And Kant thinks he's uncovered that, and so then that's what the task of the critique of pure reason is, is to answer that question. So Kant kind of blows the whistle and says, hey, hey, hold up here, everyone. What are we even doing right now? <laughs> let's, right. Uh, let's reset this. And uh, it's, you can, I imagine, I'm imagining right now a bunch of kids out playing on a playground. Right. You know, they're playing four or five different games, and it's chaotic. And then someone comes along and blows the whistle and says, hold on here. We're all playing different games. Uh, nobody even knows the rules anymore. This is a chaotic mess. Let's all decide to play one game. Let's determine what the rules are. And then we can um, get more out of our playtime experience. Right. I don't know if that is a very good comparison or not, but that's what I was thinking of. Seems to work for me, right? That um, that we all have to, before we go out and play the game, we have to figure out the rules of the game. There's this prior task that we have to do. And that's what critique is, is that prior task before metaphysics that's establishing the criteria on the basis of which metaphysical knowledge could be claimed. Now, you show in your book very perspicaciously how Hegel's engagement with Kantian critique is both complex and evolving. And it's not at all dismissive, contrary to how commentators have frequently interpreted it, uh, you note. But you also show how Hegel's engagement with Kantian critique is central to how Hegel's own philosophical system developed during his years as a young philosopher and lecturer in Jena between 1801 and 1806. Could you begin to take us through the stages of how Hegel responds to Kant's critical philosophy, beginning maybe with his earlier views on what he took to be the quote-unquote unphilosophical, epistemic, or critical procedures of his time, versus his understanding, before writing The Phenomenology of Spirit, of the status of metaphysical knowledge and the true philosopher's access to that knowledge? Sure. So... um the thing to say about Kant's project from Hegel's point of view is that um, it ends up in an unsatisfying place because the way I just described what Kant set out to do is he set out to 
establish metaphysics as a science by first asking the question, well, what are the criteria for, for knowledge of metaphysical propositions? Um, but he comes to, through his inquiry at a place where we can't have knowledge of the unconditioned. So metaphysics turns out to be impossible as rational knowledge of the unconditioned on Kant's picture. So Kant ends up trying to drawing limits according to what, that which we desire to know is beyond our kin. And this is frustrating for, um, well, for a lot of post-Kantian philosophers, not only for Hegel, but also for Hegel. The, the idea that we're blocked off from knowledge of the absolute. Mm -hmm. One never attains to the cognition of the absolute after which one strives, you write, of this frustration. Right. And so what Hegel diagnoses as the kind of underlying problem here in Kant is that th there's a problem with his whole procedure. Um, this is, I think, something Hegel is referring to at the very beginning of his introduction to the phenomenology of spirit, that the attempt to determine the criteria of metaphysical judgment in a prior subjective inquiry contains implicitly the limits to knowledge that, that Kant ends up arriving at. So it, it's basically prescribing our access to, to the absolute. We're, we're kind of drawing ourselves into a chalk circle, so to speak, of self-consciousness where we can't attain to knowledge of the absolute. So that the, the, the method is presupposing its results um, that in Kant. Um, and I think that's his position, his stance with respect to Kantian critique. When he first shows up at Jena, as, as you mentioned, as a, as a lecturer, at that point, kind of under the, in the shadow of, um, you know, his old um, roommate from the Tübinger Stift, where they were both educated together, um, Schelling. Um, Schelling was a, a more established philosopher at, at, at Jena, which was kind of a hotbed of philosophy at the, at the time. And um, he's just rejecting the critical enterprise altogether as inherently implying that we can know things only as they are for us, not as they are in themselves, which is Kant's idealism, right? That you, um, we're, we're, our, our knowledge is, is restricted to the human standpoint. And so in Kantian idealism, it's the unconditioned uh, that has to conform to the subject's cognitive apparatus. Right. And, and in this, doing so, mm -hmm, yes. in doing so, in conforming, it's it's no longer the unconditioned, right? Because it's conditioned by us, and so we're knowing it only as it, it appears, not at not as it is in itself. We're not knowing the unconditioned, right? We're we're related to the unconditioned because. Um, in some sense, it's the source of the content of our knowledge, but we can't um, we can't have cognition of it. Does that make sense? Yes. And so the the idea, the unconditioned goes by a few different names, right? We have the, the unconditioned, the idea, the absolute, the thing in itself. Right. Exactly. It's it's confusing how many names get thrown get thrown around here for sure. Um, unconditioned is Kant's name. For this object of metaphysics that um, we're aspiring to, we can't avoid um, aspiring to know, but we also can never attain knowledge of. Um, that that's that's Kant's name, but in Hegel, it um, it comes to. I, I think it's essentially the same thing that Hegel's pointing to with different words. Um, the the absolute is probably the most um, the most frequent word that he uses for it. Um, uh, and, you know, it's just, these are different names for what in, you know, in the history of metaphysics goes by the name of God, right? And so Hegel's suspicion is, is a critique initially uh, of Kantian critique is that it's subjectivistic. Everything, the, the, the absolute, the idea, the unconditioned just becomes a function of the subject and we can never escape this subjectivity. And it's then the subjectivity that sort of posits itself over against the unconditioned, creating a situation of opposition between the two. Exactly. Right. Hegel, he's a little bit, he's closer to his friend Schelling at this point. Um, they're editing a journal together. And 
you note in, in the book that in Schelling's system, the unconditioned is known uh, differently than through Kant's system, namely through the intellectual intuition rather than discursively through the understanding. And so this um, knowledge of the unconditioned, it cannot be demonstrated to what Hegel calls ordinary consciousness. It's only the privileged few have access to it, those who have the intellectual intuition. And so philosophy is a kind of esoteric in this sense. And for Hegel too, during this period, philosophy um, maintained the status of being esoteric. It's not communicable to ordinary consciousness. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's um, I mean, I think that's an important issue in, in this period is can philosophy be made public? Um, and how can it be made? Can, can it be made a public possession, as it were, made available to us all? Um, or, or is it something where um, if people with who are gifted in some way or another um, can access the philosophical truth? Um, uh, so I think in, in Romanticism, in Schelling, um, that there's at least... I mean, there's more than just flirting with the idea that it's it's uh, philosophy is the private possession of the few, those who have a special kind of intuition of the absolute, right? But it can't be made available through discursive means, through a kind of demonstration. So Hegel doesn't necessarily he he diverges from Kant because he he seems to believe that um, the Kantian project is rooted it. It's grounded in this, what he calls ordinary consciousness that falsely bifurcates between the subject and the object. Right. Whereas Hegel's idealism, the rational has no opposites. Hegel's idealism, the, it's the, the principle of philosophy is the identity of being and thinking. There can't be a wedge between being and thinking. Exactly. Right. Um, um, this he also shares with... Um, with Schelling, this idea of the absolute as an identity. And he thinks that Kant's, um, you know, his, his epistemology and his, um, his philosophy of mind is, is fundamentally dualistic in, in the way that he conceives um, kind of knowledge as um, a relation of representations to their objects and the objects are distinct from the representations. And so there's a kind of dualism there in cognition where a gulf has to be bridged in knowledge between the subjective representation and, uh, and the reality, which is the object. And so this can be seen and is seen by Hegel as a, a kind of dogmatism, where the essence of dogmatism consists, you write, in positing something finite, something ensnared in opposition, something like the Kantian subject, as the absolute. Right, right. Well, I was just going to uh, segue here into the epistemological or the critical procedure that Hegel takes up against this, um, well, we haven't, we haven't called it this yet, but this modern skepticism, this skepticism regarding the objectivity of what we know. And so Hegel rejects modern skepticism as really a crisis in culture, a crisis brought about by the Enlightenment. And instead, he goes back, you have a chapter on this in your book, he goes up to, to the ancient um, Pyrrhonists, the Pyrrhonist skeptics, Yes. What it might be good for me to mention here, I haven't really kind of brought out yet, is um, Hegel sees his own culture as alienated, you know, um, as his problem of alienation, which he diagnoses as an alienation between um, fundamentally between subjectivity and objectivity, right? Um, subject and object. Um, um, at that dichotomy is structuring the modern culture. Um, and what I argue in, in the book is that in Hegel's early in a period, he's, he's reaching back to ancient epistemology to recover the kind of unity of subject and object that he thinks is the philosophical idea, the philosophical absolute, um, you know, this identity of subject and object. Um, of, of being and thought um, that in in the modern period is lost, and it's it's, it's lost partly because um, there is this 
insistence upon the kind of the finite understanding, the, mm-hmm. the eye of of, of 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 finite individuals. Um, they, they're claiming their own standing independently of their relationship to the absolute. Just to know, this is precisely the standpoint of ordinary consciousness, right. as opposed to philosophical consciousness, which he wants to recover from the, the ancients. Right, right. So, um, so this insistence upon the um, uh, the self-standingness of ordinary consciousness is expressed as the impossibility of philosophical knowledge. And he interprets Kant's critical system as the expression of that, right? Um, it's the denial of philosophy in favor of um, the self-standing nature of, of, of individual subjectivity. Uh, does, that, does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. And this is a condition of crisis, as, as we've noted here. The crisis uh, is the standpoint of ordinary consciousness as it's emerged in the modern period, which is the valorization in modern European culture of, as you said, the self-standing subject, the ordinary consciousness over against the absolute. And not only that, but also the dogmatic application in philosophy from Descartes to Kant, Fichte, of the principle of ordinary consciousness, which is the principle of non-identity, which for Hegel is exactly the opposite of the principle of philosophy. The principle of philosophy for him is the principle of identity. So he is going to go back and um, write in an article on the relation of skepticism to philosophy about uh, the procedure of the skeptics, which skeptically attacks ordinary criteria of knowledge. Exactly. So he's, he's reaching back to an ancient um, philosophical procedure, that of the ancient skeptics, um, because the modern philosophical epistemological procedure is tainted by this dualism. Yes, so that's, that's, uh, that's what I argue is going on there. And it's kind of, it's the idea of a kind of recovery of a, a model of philosophical knowledge that's ancient, but it's lost in the modern world. Um, uh, and and it, it kind of goes with in, in that period, of, in the kind of romantic period of, of, of Hegel's development when he's um, you know, associates with Schelling with a kind of rejection of modernity um, mm-hmm. in favor of a kind of recovery of of this timeless model of philosophical knowing, which is fundamentally kind of platonic. Yes, yes, and uh, a rejection of the the modern skepticism too, which is being skeptical of our knowledge capacity to know the unconditioned. Um, right, and structured by this kind of ontological and epistemological gulf between the subject and the object. Yep. He takes the he takes the Pyrrhonist skepticism to be infinitely more skeptical than modern varieties. Uh, I right. have a quote here. You write that the skeptic's path is not defined as a school, as over against other schools with opposing opinions and beliefs, but as an education to a way of life, which is to say that these ancient skeptics do not define themselves over against philosophy, in opposition to and in competition with it. According to Hegel, ancient skepticism turns against the claims of philosophy only when philosophy itself becomes dogmatic. This happens when philosophers define their principles in opposition to those of other philosophers. That is, when they begin to see themselves as belonging to a school, we could say, which is itself in opposition to the very idea of philosophy, namely philosophy as essentially being one. This is the Platonism in Hegel, I guess, where uh, there there may be different expressions of philosophy, but insofar as these different expressions get at the essential, eternal, unchanging idea, there is only one philosophy. So if you have philosophy splintered up into a bunch of different schools that have dogmas, well, philosophy has then become dogmatic. What does this skeptical procedure uh, ultimately accomplish? I think the way Hegel thinks about it most basically is that the skeptical procedure um, negates all limited claims to knowledge. So it's negative in that sense. Like you said, the via negativity, the via negativa, it's constantly negating um, particular claims. Um, But 
ultimately it's it's leading to something positive um, at, at the end of the day, according to Hegel, which is the the truth of philosophy, um, which is not a particular truth, right? It's not a it's not a truth that has an opposite, right? As you referred to earlier, um, it's it's not one thing among others, but it's the whole. So philosophy is one with skepticism. Yeah, it's, yes. it's truth. As as he puts it in that in that early in that early article, um, so yeah, he, he sees any kind of philosophy that claims to be a school or a particular philosophy to be in in in, in saying that about itself, basically confessing that it's so described not a true philosophy, um, because the, the the philosophy must be one and it must kind of put its face forward as um, not standing in opposition to other other claims. And that brings us to uh, what criticism is for Hegel in this early Jena period. Mm -hmm. um, criticism is, as he conceives it during this time, is just the philosophical task of judging what attains to the status of being genuine philosophy and what doesn't. What expresses the idea, you know, like uh, as in criticism of a work of art, right? The, the work of a philosoph of philosophical criticism consists in recognizing the universal that's expressed in the particular. Right. In which philosophical systems do we catch a glimpse of the idea? Which philosophers were able to think the absolute? Right, exactly. So so Hegel and Schelling are um they're putting out this journal that's called the critical journal and and what they're conceiving of criticism as being um is is basically they're going to be talking about different appearances of philosophy, right? It's basically going to be doing reviews, right, of 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 work that's appearing as and uh, claiming to be philosophy, and it's going to be testing that work against the idea of the absolute to see what is true in it and what versus what's false in it, right? Um, and they're going to be. I mean, I, I kind of like the way he, in which he he talks about criticism here because he's saying that that the true criticism is kind of going to show the truth in what in what's presented it's kind of going to get rid it kind of refine the um the presented article and um manifest what's what's true in it and kind of cut away those parts of it that uh, that obscure the presentation of the of of the philosophical idea in it i mean it's both positive and negative but um but it has this positive upshot Mm -hmm. And distinguish genuine philosophy from what he also calls unphilosophy. Right. But philosophical critique ends up getting philosophically transformed by Hegel uh, by the time that he writes the phenomenology. Right. But let's see. the The key thing for me, I mean, what I've argued, what um, is that there's a kind of revolution in his thinking when he's at Jena, wherein he comes to recognize the validity of the epistemological demand that um, that underlies Kantian critique, the demand that starting from ordinary consciousness um, and its criteria, we have to be able to kind of lead step by step from there to knowledge of the philosophical principle. Remember that um, in in the early Ana period, he was with Schelling in in saying that such a demonstration isn't isn't possible because the standpoint of philosophical critique um, presupposes subjectivism and it presupposes the kind of dualism that is um, that is characteristic of the of uh, of the of the modern period. Um, but he comes to see that this uh, this 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 epistemological demand is is grounded in a kind of self-certainty of the of the individual that's based upon a self-discovery so it, philosophy can't swipe it away can't just dismiss it as as an invalid uh, epistemological demand there's something essential that has a, occurred with this modern self-discovery right and i mean and you could kind of locate this if you wanted to i mean not that hegel does very explicitly but in the cartesian cogito right a kind of self discovery of, of of ourselves as self as self standing and such that we have a right to demand rational insight to that which would demand of us our recognition of it um 
This kind of goes back to your introduction when you were talking about, you know, being critical. Um, just that sense of being critical where we teach our students to be critical, right? It's a test, uh, the idea of distrusting authority and you, you should um, always be critical with respect to anything that you read or, or what, what any authorities that, that present themselves to you. Um, Hegel... Um, I, I mean, I think Hegel's early Jena period is kind of skeptical with respect to that demand for criticism because he thinks it's bound up with subjectivism. Um, mm. But he comes to realize that 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 there's a that that demand of criticism, you know, expressed in that way, is valid. And so we have to, if philosophy is going to demonstrate itself, it has to demonstrate itself. Um, it has to respond to that epistemological demand. You write that. Um... By the time of the phenomenology, in the preface and introduction, as you've just laid out for us, Hegel returns to the Kantian critique, and his return to the Kantian critique turns in great part on his recognition that its epistemological demand is backed by a modern self-discovery. And this recognition is accompanied by a change in Hegel's conception of the nature of the truth of philosophy itself. So Hegel has to come to admit with this modern self-discovery, that he has to admit the historicity of the idea. So previously he believed that the ambition of philosophy must be to know and to express the idea or the unconditioned, the absolute, as eternal and unchangeable. In the phenomenology, with his return to Kantian critique via the skeptical procedure of the ancients, he recognizes that this necessarily and equally includes grasping and expressing the historically contingent finite subject as well. So that is, philosophy must in fact satisfy the demand of, quote, the highest right of the subject. In the famous uh, Hegel quote, everything turns on grasping and expressing the true, not only as substance, but equally as subject. Right. This is, um, this is the hard Hegelian thought <laughs> that, um, that the truth becomes, right? It's not just, um, as in Plato or uh, this unchanging reality, um, but it's a, it's a reality that becomes itself through a development, right? And so I'm, I'm suggesting in the book that this, his kind of coming to recognize that the modern epistemological demand is as modern something something new and something that must be come to terms with um, uh, in, implies that truth itself has uh, becomes right so that the philosophy has a history because I, I think if you go back to some of those early writings in the early Jena period he's representing a conception of philosophy as essentially a historical um, there and and but obviously not in the phenomenology of spirit. And so in in its becoming and its historical unfolding of the idea, this is how we get the condition of opposition and alienation that you described earlier. This condition of crisis of mutual alienation between ordinary consciousness and philosophical consciousness. And this mutual opposition and alienation it consists in the absence of a shared or common criteria. So. You have the, the right of the subject to demand demonstration of philosophy's principles, which Hegel now recognizes. And so the question why the project of the phenomenology is necessary, you write, is the question of why this condition of mutual opposition and alienation constitutes a crisis for metaphysics. Right. Why is this condition intolerable for philosophy? Why must philosophy come to terms with its, this opposed unphilosophical standpoint with ordinary con consciousness with with the demands uh, and the rights of the subject well the seeds for that are contained in things we've already said i mean if um philosophy's principle as you quoted from um hegel where he says the rational has no opposite so it, it can't be it can't have anything that stands over against it right um outside of it the truth is all that is so there's nothing opposed to it standing opposite to it now so the the basis on which he in the early yena writings can kind of dismiss um the uh uh the epistemological demand expressed in kantian critique is one where he has to kind of 
represented as unphilosophy over against philosophy, right? It, it, it can't have any truth in it. But once he comes to recognize that it does have truth in it, right, that, that the self-standing individual um, is self-standing, right, that, um, that it has, um, it, it has a, a right to make its demand, then uh, philosophy can't be philosophy until it's united itself with that standpoint. That's how he, in fact, puts it in the preface where he, he kind of famously represents the phenomenology of spirit as a kind of ladder from that leads us up to um, the philosophical consciousness from the ordinary consciousness. Um, and um, he says there that it has to kind of philosophy has to reconcile itself with with that which stands over against it in order to be what it is. So the phenomenology is going to be the realization of the science of philosophy only through reconciling itself with the ordinary consciousness that stands over against it at the beginning. Aha, uh -huh, yes. And so the claims of philosophy must, at the end of the day, be made commonly intelligible yeah. as a yes. condition for the existence of philosophy as a science. Right, right, exactly. And correspondingly, Hegel recognizes our right to make that precisely that demand on philosophy as well. Right. So we have the right to make the demand upon philosophy that it elevate us to that standpoint. That's, that's really to say that we, we have a right to press our epistemological demands against philosophy insofar as philosophy um, dismisses us as, as not making a legitimate demand for a demonstration. Um, philosophy is consigning itself to being, as he puts it, a mere appearance, right? Not, not being reality. Um, but then um, philosophy has a right to make a demand upon us as well, as he says in that very same passage, right? And, and that's where the self-transformational aspect of the method comes in. Well, in a way, this is what I'm trying to do here with Philosophy for the People podcast is to uh, exercise the right to demand of philosophy that it demonstrate its principles right. <laughs> by constructing a path from the standpoint of ordinary consciousness to the standpoint of philosophy. Right, right. Another way of putting it is to say that even if philosophy at first blush appears to be esoteric, if it's mm -hmm. ever to truly become what it is, it must be made public. So philosophical science or metaphysics must become exoteric. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's how, that's how Hegel conceives of it in, in the phenomenology of spirit that it, um, I mean, it's, it's his conception of philosophy as a science there is that it has to become public. He says that explicitly. And so we end up having here a new determination of the work of philosophical critique. Uh, you write Dr. Bristow quote, this new determination of the work of philosophical critique is critique as the process of eliminating apparent opposition between standpoints through constituting common criteria. And in order to do the work of constituting this criterion, philosophy must submit itself to the crisis. It must surrender its truth and get down on all fours with unphilosophy, so to speak, and in this way alone, philosophy can establish itself in this conf confrontation as philosophy. So philosophy cannot be content merely to keep its wisdom to itself. Uh, that wisdom, it has to be, as we said already, it has to be made public. It has to be um, accessible by everyone. It has to be universal in that sense. So in this sense, is, is Hegel uh, admitting to a, a Kantian criterion of universalizability? When he invokes um, when he invokes a criterion of common intelligibility, yeah, I'm I'm not sure that Kant really conceived of it in this way. Um, I mean, the, the the criterion of universalizability in the kind of practical domain for Kant is um, a process by which you determine whether or not something is um, a moral duty or morally permissible. Um, I think the way. Hegel is conceiving of it here is that it's only through this kind of discipline of um, of responding to this epistemological challenge, which he thinks is, in the way I've interpreted it, he thinks is Kant's epistemological challenge expressed in the project of philosophical critique. It, it's only through the discipline of submitting to that demand um, that philosophy's 
truth gets articulated, right? I mean, otherwise it remains something merely um, private and inexpressible. But so the, the, the truth really becomes articulated only through that process. It becomes something specific. Th- does that make sense? It does. It does. You put it elsewhere that you have to allow the existential crisis to fully flower. Another thing he accuses Kant of is mere formalism, right? Right. And so what Hegel advocates is this path of despair, as you put it. It's not just a path of doubt. It's not just uh, the Cartesian-style doubt. This is something more involved on the part of the subject, the inquiring subject. So it, it requires us abandoning our own presuppositions and being willing to engage the subject matter in a more existentially committed way and to be willing to undergo that crisis ourselves, that crisis of confusion and unknowing and disorientation. And in that process to, as this um, new determination of the work of philosophical critique has it, in this process to eliminate or work our way through apparent oppositions between standpoints in order to constitute a common criterion. And this common criteria is what Hegel continued to believe could ground metaphysics as a science. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's, I think that's the picture, right? So if, if we, I mean, the way in which he portrays it in the preface, um, you, you just imagine, you know, philosophy um, on one side, and then um, ordinary consciousness on the other, opposed to each other. And one tempt- the temptation for philosophy is to just dismiss ordinary consciousness and to say, you know, I'm not going to bother with you. I can't make my truth available to you. Um, y- you'd know what I know if you just had this intellectual intuition or if you were gifted in the right sort of way. Um, and um, on the other side, there's the ordinary consciousness that's, um, it's tempted to kind of say, well, the only truth is the truth that conforms to my understanding, right? And in order to, to my concepts. And I mean, somewhat crudely, the way Hegel reads Kant is that Kantian philosophical crit- criticism constructs a system out of that standpoint, right? That it's, it's really conformity of the object to the subject that is the ultimate criterion, so that the subject only knows things as it is for it, and the and the absolute is relegated to a beyond and cannot be cognized. And so Hegel comes to a position where he thinks that the claims of each of these have to be validated, right, in vis-a-vis the other. And, 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 the, and so he devises a method, a method of criticism for the phenomenology of spirit where um, the ordinary consciousness is going to start um, subjecting its own claims to truth to criticism according to its own criterion, um, that's subjecting itself to the crisis because it has to be willing to have its own standpoint transformed through that process. And that's obviously um, a difficult process. That's why he calls it a path of despair, right? Because it, you have to subject yourself to the possibility of self-loss through that process. Um, but Philosophy is subjecting itself to a kind of crisis too, because it can either be validated or not validated through that process of criticism. And and if it's not validated, then it's not valid. So it, it doesn't have truth. So that's that's kind of the picture. It's it, I, so what I talk about in the book is Hegel's effort to describe a kind of criticism that can be genuinely transformational for the one undergoing it. And you make the point several times that we naturally resist philosophical education. Right. This is a trope that goes back to Plato, right? That um, um, exactly because philosophical education promises to be transformational, it, um, it's also threatening, right? And, um, and so in Plato's allegory of the cave, you have um, the unenlightened um, trying, you know, looking with great suspicion upon their enlighteners, right? Um, and this is obviously referring back to Socrates in Athens, right? Who's put to death by his fellow citizens because um, uh, of the kind of threat posed by philosophy. Um, from from looking at it from one perspective, it looks like liberation. Looking at it 
from another perspective, it looks like self-annihilation. And so, yes, the, the resistance to philosophy is, um, is part of the theme here. It's really the, the threat of ignorance, the threat of, of not knowing. Right. That's, that's exactly it. The threat is um, um, that we would have to fundamentally change, right? And that's, that's the, that feels like self-loss, um, uh, even though from another perspective, it might look like growth or development or, yeah, um, um, from the perspective of us in our lives, it looks like self-loss. Dr. Bristow, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. This has been an enlightening conversation. Oh, well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your careful reading of my book. I, I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to engage the topic in more depth, be sure to sign up for our free weekend seminar starting Saturday, September 5th. The seminar will be held online over a period of 14 weeks and is open to anyone. Just email philosophyforthepeople at gmail.com and you will be automatically registered to receive updates and weekly invitations to our online classroom. Again, that's starting September 5th. This has been a solid work production. Solid work. Solid work. Uh, solid work. Hey, solid, solid work. work.